Buying Tampa Bay podcast. I'm your host, Peter Murphy, and this week I'm going to be taking you out in the field to connect you with our co-host, Chase Clark, where he's managing the rehab of a home in a suburb of Tampa. It's a fascinating look that we're going to be taking inside the rehab of a home. And as we go through that process with you, we'll talk about how we made our buying decision, what we're doing and how we handle a rehab process, including changes we need to make in the field uh, as the project unfolds. And we're going to show you a little bit about how we approach the challenges that you encounter during a rehab process and the decisions that you make with color palette selections and rent rate setting and just about everything you can imagine. We hope it's a very helpful look for you inside of how the sausage is made when you're rehabbing a property. We look forward to inspiring you to do something just like this yourself in 2023. Let's go out in the field and see how things are going. All right, so Chase, here we are at... uh... 9805 North 53rd Street. That's it. All right. So tell me a little bit about the neighborhood. Hey, so a, a 1950s, late 1950s, early 60s build community. You know, we got low roof lines, concrete block construction, 3-1 or 3-2 possibly traditional floor plans, some carports, some one-car garages like this. And actually, this home was originally built with a carport, and the previous owners closed in the carport to create a really nice one-car garage here. And you can see what drew us to this house initially was the curb appeal. Uh, oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, you got an older home, but got some decent landscaping here. We're going to touch it up a little bit as we go through the project. But uh, new windows on the front, nice clean lines. It did need a new roof, which we, we put on and have uh, updated the paint to modernize the color palette a little bit. But uh, overall, great working class neighborhood here in the city limits of Temple Terrace, but just across 56th Street from the golf course community. And so we're right on the cusp of some really nice high value homes in the Temple Terrace area. So I'm seeing a lot of homes that do have their carports still. It seems like it was a trend in this area at some time in the past to like take your carport and turn it into a garage. So that's kind of cool to see how people have really invested a lot of money in their houses. Yeah, that's right. This street in particular does kind of a loop between 54th Street and 53rd Street. And you've got real pride of ownership here. A lot of these owners have lived here for a long time, you know, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years in these homes. And they're well taken care of. The yards are clean. Houses are are well kept, good paint. People have been updating them with newer roofs, newer windows, things like that to make them more energy efficient. And so overall, we've got an up-and-coming neighborhood here where we think we can add a lot of value to a home like this coming in and rehabbing it and then ride that wave of appreciation that is is uh, coming for areas like this right on the cusp of, of the more upscale development. Yeah, because what you have here is affordable housing to some degree, right? And all around us and the neighborhoods around us, it's not so affordable. But here you have homes, three bed, two baths, you can get into for, for what? What is the entering price in homes around here? You know, it's still under 400000 you know? So even for a fully rehab product like this, you could probably buy this in the mid to upper threes. And compared to the average pricing in Hillsborough County right now, we're in the high threes or low fours. So we're talking about a home that's like 20% below market pricing. That's right. You That's know, a I big think, deal. Uh, our average home price, you know, in January was uh, 406. Or actually, median home price was 406. Mm-hmm. Average is now up to like 480 here in Hillsborough County. Yeah, it's come way up. Yeah. And uh, so tell me also about how we're doing stuff like color choices these days. I mean, I'm seeing, you know, a pretty neutral color palette, but it really pops. It looks a lot like what I see online. What kind of choices do you make? How much variability do you have from rehab to rehab on things like color palettes? 
So we traditionally have gone with, you know, a gray and white color palette over the last color, couple of years because it's made, been made so popular by uh, shows like, uh, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines with their Magnolia stuff, you know, and there have been grays and whites everywhere. And if you look around the neighborhood, we've got all kinds of colors. We've got peaches, we've got yellows, we've got reds, we've got grays and blacks, we've got oranges and reds, you know. And so you've got a, you've got a, a real wide variety of colors here. But the gray and the white with the black, like the home across the street, really just seems to pop. It's yeah, it got does. a classy look to it. It's got a clean look to it. And honestly, over the past five years, as we flipped homes, it has been the color palette that has sold these homes very quickly. Right. I love it. I love this a good sized front yard here. Plenty of like, you know, room for kids to play. And why don't you take us inside? Show us a little yeah, what's going on. Now, let me give you a disclaimer, too. So as we're going into this project, we're not showing you like the sexy, uh, you know, completed project with all the stage furniture. We're showing you kind of like a, a middle of the construction project job. Right. Yeah, that's right, man. This is how we make the sausage. Uh, you know, you won't see too many of these uh, mid rehab kind of uh, videos or photos come out because everyone wants to see that stark contrast between the really ugly, terrible house and the beautiful finished product. Yeah. Uh, but right now, our contractors have been in here. Obviously, they've they've got their stuff everywhere. We've got materials ready to go up, like blinds over here on the wall. We've got our LVP flooring down in about eighty percent of the house right now. We've got our cabinets, new cabinets in the kitchen with new granite installed. Appliances will come in about a week or so. Um, we've staged a new water heater there, you know, in the living room along with some other uh, things that are going to be needed to replace the sliding glass door. Right. That's not going there at the end of the rehab, I'm assuming, right? The refrigerator doesn't... No, it's ultra convenient if you wanted, like, hot water on tap for your tea in the I evening know. right next to your sofa in the living room. I know. Don't even leave the living room. There's a fridge yes. fully stocked with your favorite beverages, yeah. so you're good to go, yeah, right? Yeah, I tell you. Put the couch right between those and you're set. I, I love it. So you maintain things like this red brick veneer on the fireplace. Tell me about that decision. Yeah, so, you know, just kind of a classic look. Um, whether or not we, we end up with that, we don't know. We may end up whitewashing it because that is kind of the, the more modern look now. Um, but we plan on trimming out that fireplace and, you know, seeing how, how it uh, melds into the rest of the project when we get closer to finish. It's really pretty, though. I like the contrast even right now. You know, the red brick is not one of those ugly palettes. So it will be, it could go either way, right? Paint it or leave it the way it is. Yeah, there's something classic about it, you know? When you're talking about a house built in the late 50s, maybe a little bit of classic would be nice. No kidding, yeah. So this has got really some really high ceilings for a house built in the late 50s, so tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so this right here, we're standing in the living room. This was an addition that was put onto the home at some time in the past. Not sure exactly what year it was added, but it was not part of the original structure. Uh, the original home would have been behind that really thick wall there that goes into the kitchen which is a telltale sign of, of an addition to a home when you've got a, a 12 or 18 inch thick uh, wall there with concrete block in it. So uh, this was definitely a nice value add that someone did in the past. And when they did it, they added a nice pass-through bar there for maybe a couple of stools, uh, sit at the bar and, and chat with the folks in the kitchen. And uh, you know, a really nice feature here. So that's going to bring up questions in any novice rehabber's mind. What about permits, right? Is it, was this a permitted addition? And does that even matter at this point if we're looking back to the 50s or sometime since then when all this was done? Yeah, I mean, my guess is this addition was probably done sometime in the 90s. Um, 
I don't typically dig too deep into whether or not these additions have been permitted or not. If I see that the square footage has already been added to the property appraiser's website, I know it probably wasn't anything done recently. And we know enough now about these rehabs that we can assess the quality of construction and determine whether or not we're going to have any issues with stuff, even if it was unpermitted. So I look out through the windows, I see some windows that are nice and newer, I see some that are a lot older. You know, how do you make the choice in a house like this to say, we're gonna keep some of the windows, but not all. We're gonna keep some of the veneers and the walls, but not all. We're gonna retexture some surfaces, but not all. Like what kind of decisions are you making like that? So it all goes into your initial strategy. And so our initial strategy for this home was to create a really nice rental product here in Temple Terrace. And so typically when we go into a rental project, we're going to, have, have a budget that only does things that will be effective in getting the max rental price out of the home. And so windows, as long as they're functional, even if they're old, aren't necessarily going to affect our rental price. They may affect our price when we go to sell the home, and so prior to sell, we may replace jealous windows. But we've got some really well-functioning jealous windows in bathrooms and in the back of some of the bedrooms here in the home. And those are not taking away at all from the rental value that this property will present to a prospective renter. So if you were going in to sell this home, you might make a different decision. That's right, yeah. And your strategy is often the most important thing. You've got to know what that is going in because if this was going to be a retail flip, we'd probably make some different choices with a few finishes here and there and with the scope of work, like replacing windows. Gotcha. So I'm looking back into the kitchen again, and there we go. We have the shaker cabinets going. We've got this very neutral color scheme. Is this the same kind of decisions you're making, Chase, that we're going to go with a tried and tested model and not try much new when it comes to these kinds of rehabs? Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, white cabinets with uh, dark granite has worked for us in so many of our homes. Now, you can also do dark cabinets with light granite. That works just as well. But we found a really good deal on this very neutral kind of grayish brown LVP flooring. And so it made more sense to go with a lighter cabinet in this application to kind of contrast the floor. And um, all of it kind of works together really well now. I like it. So how are you getting good deals on stuff like flooring? I mean, what does that look like? Are you negotiating with your Home Depot rep? Are you finding supplies at some place? You know, it's a combination of things. I mean, usually Home Depot and Lowe's are our first stop when we're going to check and see what kind of a deal we can get on materials for these kind of projects. Uh, we've got a pro account with Home Depot, and we've got a rep that can sometimes provide us discounts on product that has been on the shelf for a little while or stuff that they're looking to close out. And we like to take advantage of those deals whenever we can. Excellent. So, so take us back into the bedrooms, show us what you're doing and what you're not doing in them. And like, well, tell me a little bit about the bed and bath count. What do you got here? All right, so yeah, this is a traditional layout. And so if you think about that being the former exterior wall on the end of the home, this is what a traditional 1958 3-2 home would have looked like. You've got a dining living combo room here when you walk in the front door, and then you've got the long galley hallway with beds and baths on either side. And so as we come down the hall here, the first thing we run into is the bathroom. This is the main bath for the house. And it's a decent sized bath with a single vanity, a toilet, and a shove tower, tub shower combo. Um, shove towers are my favorite. Shove towers. <laughs> it's like the heat seeker. Yeah, <laughs> How do you really say that? We'll never know, right? Shove tower. <laughs> <laughs> if we had a really high ceiling, we would definitely call it a shove tower. Oh, yeah, that's but right. This is a tub shower. <laughs> hey, I've got to ask that question, right? So I walk in here, 1950s homes, right? 
they they have things that we don't have in current build homes, like lower ceilings, right? And of course, the addition had a little bit more height. That's great. Why should we not be afraid of walking into a home and it has like, you're a 6'4", you can literally touch the ceiling with your hands. Yeah. A lot of folks, yeah. you know, don't like that. They want higher ceilings. So why should we not be afraid of the fact that we're walking into a home that has some of those older standards? Well, I think a combination of things, number one location, right? I mean, you just haven't seen a lot of these homes be torn down and, and rebuilt with more modern construction practices in this area. So eight-foot ceilings are common. No matter where you go, you see an eight-foot ceiling. That used to be the standard. Um, when you get into some of the higher-end stuff now, you've got nine, 10, 11, 12-foot ceilings, and it gives you that extra volume, makes the home feel more spacious. But all in all, I think this is normal to most people, especially in a working class neighborhood, is you're gonna find an eight foot ceiling. So the quick so the quick and easy answer is don't apply your standard of living to what might be normal in a given area. Yeah, that's right. I mean, every house has someone that wants it, you know? And especially in this area right now, there aren't any vacant homes. And so whether or not somebody really wants this eight foot ceiling versus a 10, I think we'd all choose 10, but Eight is what you got and eight is what you get. And it's plenty high. Um, in fact, if you want to pan back around to the kitchen, you see we've got these nice 42 inch cabinets. So one thing we did in here to help volumize the kitchen was we took out the old soffits. Ah, yes. You know, so, so many homes built prior to like 1995 had soffits in the kitchen that would come down 12 inches from the ceiling. And then you have a really short cabinet. You'd have like a 36 instead of a 42 cabinet. And um, makes a big difference. Number one, it creates a whole lot more storage space for you, but it elevates that ceiling in general and opens up the kitchen, makes it feel a lot bigger than it actually might be. Yeah, it's one of those older construction standards I'll never quite understand. Like, did people <laughs> actually like living in low-roofed houses back in the day? Yeah. And evidently they did because they bought a whole lot of them and made a whole lot of them. So, so great stuff. Here's one bathroom. This is a two-bath house, right? Yeah, two-bath house. We've got a bath back in the master, which is, okay. which is kind of unique for a 58 build. It sure well. is. They all typically have this uh, hall closet with bypass doors. You know, very typical of, of 1950s and, and 60s construction. And the bedroom size is the other thing. You know, we think about ceiling height. The other thing that's atypical of an older home like this is the size of the bedroom. I mean, this is like a 10 by 10 bedroom. Um, you know, typically today we're seeing 12 by 12s, 11 by 12s, or at least 10 by 11s. And you may not think that one more square foot on the end makes a difference, but it does because that's half your closet. Right. You know, so we're also seeing bigger closets. This is a traditional, you know, 50, 60 size closet with bypass door. Um, you know, plenty of room for maybe a young child that doesn't have an extensive wardrobe, but pushing the limits for most adults, I would say. Right. So is there a solution for that in the master bedroom? Do you have a larger closet in there? Or are we just asking our residents to live with that obsolete feature? Yeah. So here, here's the master. Now, again, like, okay, slightly bigger than the other bedrooms in the house. Um, but not necessarily up to master suite standards that we see in new construction today, where you've got rooms that are 13 by 14, 14 by 16 sometimes, with his and her closets, right? And double vanity sinks, right? Right. This that's, is a tiny bathroom. It's pretty small, right. Yeah. So what do tenants think? They walk into this property, they look at this feature. How do they reconcile their lifestyle, their desires, 
to what's not a common standard that they're going to find maybe an apartment community or a newer house. Yeah, well, there, I think there's a desire to live in a single-family home over a multifamily setting, and that's that's one aspect to think about. But typically today, you know, in this market, there's such limited supply of housing for renters, and so when they find something that's in good shape and in a good neighborhood, they're willing to adjust and reconcile some of these things, like a tiny master bath. And if they're looking at older homes like this, they're thankful that they even have a master bath. Because a lot of times these homes were built as three ones and they were going into the hallway. Now, this significantly adds to the value of the home and the price that we'll be able to ask in rent, and eventually the price we'll be able to ask for a sale. Because having an ensuite bathroom, no matter how big it is or how big the master is, is something that most people are looking for. Tell me about your decision right here to lay the, uh, the vinyl flooring right over whatever flooring was there, right? So. You know, you look at this and some guys might feel like, okay, there's major demo in every room and here's a bunch of peel and stick we've got to demo off. And that might be a nightmare depending on the adhesive that was used. But that vinyl can go right over that. Is that correct? That's right, man. I tell you what, LVP flooring is one of the best things to come around in the last few years. This flooring, not only is it thin, so it doesn't create a large profile over any other flooring that you have down on the floor already, but it's extremely durable and extremely flexible. So it can be put down over top of almost any surface other than carpet. You wouldn't want to do it on carpet. Right. Rip your carpet out and throw it right down on top of the concrete. Or throw it down on top of peeling stick. Or lay it on top of ceramic tile like we're going to do there in the bathroom right now. If you've ever tried to demo ceramic tile, you know what a disaster that is and what a mess it makes and how much time and labor goes into doing it. So we're saving ourselves all of that by just simply being able to lay the floor right on top of the tile. And you can see that it creates hardly any profile extension over what was already there. Yeah, that does, that looks like a, could be a fairly smooth transition. Now, honestly, you might still feel that underfoot, right? I mean, does that give you major concern that you might feel a slight transition from one level to the next underfoot as you walk through? You do, you may feel a slight transition. Now, this is a floating floor. With a, with a rubberized bottom line. So this will absorb some of the movement, but the floor does move, it's floating. And so no matter where you walk in the house, no matter what subsurface you put it over, you are gonna feel subtle slight movements to it because it's a floating floor. Um, ideally what we do when we have um, disproportionate surfaces or uneven surfaces that we're gonna lay the flooring over, especially going into one room from another, we'll use a molding. And so that molding will kind of uh, accommodate that transition, whether it be an eighth of an inch or a quarter inch or whatever that might be if you're going from a room that used to have carpet or peeling stick to a room that's got ceramic top. So that's a great thought. I mean, hey, and frankly, you have a lot of given carpet too, right? Yeah, that's so, right. And a lot of dirt. And a whole lot of dirt. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm looking at these old jealousy windows right here, these crank windows. Oh, yeah. My first instinct is that's probably not going to qualify for for um, for FHA financing, if we go to actually sell this in a sales strategy, is that true? And what might you have to consider if that's the strategy we end up taking on this? That's house? right. And actually, this one doesn't open, so this is going to be something we need to address. But yeah, this is definitely a problem typically for FHA financing. Now, thankfully for investors and home flippers like us, FHA has become a whole lot less prevalent in this market because if you've got good credit, 
you're able to get a conventional loan by only putting 5% down versus the three and a half. And that's a good thing for the buyer as well because the private mortgage insurance on the conventional loan is so much cheaper per month than the mortgage insurance associated with FHA. So we encourage buyers to go that route when they can and we seek out buyers that are gonna have conventional financing typically when we're doing a project like this. So while you were telling me that, I was like literally cranking on this other window and this one might work a little better, but can you find guys out there to fix these kinds of windows? Or if you have this kind of window, is it better? You know, when it's not working like that, just replace it out. What's your sense? Yeah, so there are people that can fix these windows. And so often when we come into a situation like this and we've got a window that feels like it should work, but it's not opening, it's because someone's put a screw in it at some point either for safety reasons or because bugs were coming in. You can see with a jealous window, you can easily get some separation in the window, which allows moisture and sometimes pests to come in the home. And so homeowners over the years may put a screw in to keep the window as tight as possible to prevent that from happening. All right, because this is Florida, right? And if you've got air conditioning, central air conditioning, you're not really opening your windows. That's right, yeah. And in spite of the fact that people want screens on their windows, and that is a Section 8 and an FHA standard, people just aren't even using that very much because practically, you know, you have one or two days a year where you have the ability to open your window and not be affected by humidity. Yeah, that's right. It's this time of year, right? It's like January, February, maybe early March. You know, and then you've got the windows closed and the AC running again. Right. That like, seems like a lot of effort for a two-day uh, treat of open windows. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay, so I'm walking through bedroom three, and I see a very similar process being undertaken. I see us prepared to bring the LVP into the room. I see the same kind of closet. You've obviously replaced all the doors uh, to get the six-panel styling. I see that you haven't replaced or upgraded most of the trim or molding. It's still kind of a basic trim there, and uh, it, it looks it looks fine. It looks tight and well painted. Yeah, it's a it's three and a half inch clamshell, and that was common back in the, in the fifties, even up through the eighties. You see three and a half inch clamshell uh, base uh, baseboard or base molding in the home. And what the, another thing that the LVP allows us to do because it has such a low profile. We often don't have to pull the baseboards, which is very expensive. Pulling baseboards and reinstalling new can add thousands of dollars to your rehab, but instead we're able to just add a small piece of base shoe around the edge of the molding to keep the edge of the floor secure and to give us that nice finished look, or look around the edges. Well, it's going to look great. Well, talk a little bit then about the economics of the deal. What did you end up paying for it? How did the deal come alive for you to begin with? And what are you thinking about the two strategies that you could consider here? Yeah. So, you know, I always tell people getting into real estate that one of the most important things is to develop a team, network with other people in the industry, because you never know how you'll be able to help each other. And this is a classic example of a contact I've had for about 25 years now um, from baseball, back when I played baseball in college, who's now a real estate agent who knew this homeowner and was able to send us a deal because he knows we're actively buying houses in this market. And so we were able to secure this as a cash purchase before it ever went on the public markets and therefore get it for a significant discount below what it would have sold for potentially on MLS. So you bought it at that cash level and now are that lower price level and now you have a couple of strategies, right? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we got into this house for uh, $240,000 cash. At the time, the comps suggested there was probably worth something around three fifteen dollars in its current condition. 
we're going to put about $30,000 into this rehab. And when we're done, we're thinking the value of the home is going to be somewhere in the upper threes, 370, 365, somewhere in that, in that range. And we'll probably be able to secure a renter for this home in the very high twos, probably $2,700, $2,800 a month. And so those are the economics on this project for us. We're probably going to end up holding this as a rental in our portfolio because we're so bullish on this area and for the prospects of home price appreciation over the next few years here. So the decision to rent versus to flip, uh, how do you how do you really make that for yourself? What is the what is the what are the, all the factors that you'll consider there? So uh, amount of cash available is one of the keys. Um, so you want to stay liquid. You want to have liquidity as an investor so that you can always be prepared for the next deal as it comes. And so you don't want to tie up all your cash in a project, especially one that you're going to hold for a long period of time. Um, so that's that's probably the main consideration. And then beyond that, if you do buy it for cash, can you refi it, right? The Burr strategy is a very common and very effective strategy for a lot of investors in homes like this that are, that are going to be held for rental uh, for years to come. And, you know, that's a strategy we, we take advantage of as well. We look for, you know, affordable and appropriate bank financing and keep an appropriate level of leverage on our portfolio as a whole. Um, but in looking to hold this long term as a rental, um, we'll look at cash flow. And so when we look at what we can get on a monthly basis versus what our holding costs will be in terms of the property taxes, home insurance, and uh, any other holding costs for, for maintenance-related items and things like that, we'll be able to determine what our ROI is going to be and if that's going to satisfy our investment requirement. Well, I love it. This has been a really cool insight into a project, you know, like, like you said, how the sausage is made. And, uh, you know, hey, it doesn't look all that ugly to me. It looks like you've really hit some uh, some good decisions on both the buy price. The rehab looks like it's moving along well. Oh, by the way, how long have you been rehabbing it for? That's an important. Just we started this project probably around the uh, second week of January. And so we're about a month into it at this point. Okay. Um, we've had crews pretty consistently on the project now for about 30 days. And as usual, you know, you get into a rehab thinking that you know the scope of work and there's always extra stuff that comes up. So... We're hoping to have this project complete in the next two to three weeks. So it's a 45 to 50 day project and then it's uh, then it's on the market in your case as a rental, yes? Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's, a, that's excellent. So, you know, let's come by, let's do a follow-up episode, see what it looks like when it's all done so we can't get those sexy shots of the glamorous rehab completion. And then looks, let's look at the numbers and really see how it all shook out. But uh, Chase, it's been a fantastic episode. Looking forward to sharing this with all our listeners. Yeah, sounds good. Glad to share it with you and uh, can't wait to show you the finished product in a couple weeks. 